we go. Mark 6, we're looking at verses 45 through 56, the end of the chapter there. Together with the feeding of the 5,000, these two miracles, the walking on the water, the feeding of the 5,000, are both, in a sense, exodus signs, if I can use that language. Not overtly, you know, exactly word for word the same as the exodus, but if you think in a, in a musical, uh, or if you don't like musicals, boys, Star Wars, when Darth Vader comes on, right, the same music plays in the background. Uh, it's kind of like that. The same sort of exodus theme is playing in the background of both of these. The feeding of the 5,000, uh, you hear the similarities to the, the manna in the wilderness, feeding the people in the wilderness uh, when they need provision. And then the walking on the water, uh, to see why, uh, of course, Jesus already calmed the storm earlier, so there's two water miracles. To see why those have um, a little bit of ring of Exodus in it, maybe it helps to situate Exodus in its larger context briefly. And, and it's always a little bit risky when I go off from my notes, but I was thinking it might be helpful. Uh, in both uh, uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt, uh, the, 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 the sea was personified as a god. So in Egypt, the Nile was one of the prominent gods, and the annual flooding is what irrigated the land, and then the water subsumed, and they would plant their uh, seeds. So it was sort of a fertility god. But at the same time, flooding is chaotic, and so there's kind of this sense of this uh, chaotic god flooding the land and yet also giving the gift of life. Um, Likewise, in, in Mesopotamia, Babylon, for example, Marduk was their high god, and Marduk slayed the sea god of chaos, uh, uh, Tiamat, and shaped Tiamat's body into the world. Okay, so those were the kinds of myths that people around Israel were telling about the gods. So in, in the Exodus, God, uh, not all of the Exodus miracles are one-to-one -one attacks on Egyptian gods, but certainly they worship the Nile River, says, look, I'll, I'll turn the river into blood. Who's really in charge here? They worship the sun. Look, I'll make the sun dark for three days. Who's really in charge here? They claim the Pharaoh's God on earth. I'll take the Pharaoh's firstborn son. Who's really in charge here? Uh, likewise, when the Pharaoh's armies are defeated in the, in the Red Sea or Reed Sea and it comes back over them, it's not, exact, it's not mythological like the stories they're telling, but it's saying, look, you think your gods are in charge of the waters. I'm actually in charge of the water. See what's going on here? So when, when Jesus both calms the storm and now walks on the water, I think we're hearing a bit of that, that motif, that music in the background of the Exodus. So, so I think these are both Exodus signs. Uh, I'll get back to the notes now so we end on time. But uh, the key to the passage seems to be in verse 52. They did not understand about the loaves. They're, they're frightened, they're worried, their hearts are even hardened. There's a little bit of Exodus language there again. Remember Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And the reason why is they seem to not understand something about the loaves. There was an unlearned lesson of the loaves that they missed it and so weren't prepared for what they found. Well, let's read this passage together and then reflect on it. Immediately... That is right after they've distributed the loaves and then gathered the crumbs. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we would not miss the lesson to be learned in this sign. Let us see you for who you are as you reveal yourself to us in your word. Amen. Immediately, immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. Well, Mark, as we've noted a number of times, is an action-packed gospel. It has the least amount of teaching uh, of any of the gospels, and he uses this word immediately. I can't remember what I said early on, but 42 times or something like that in in the gospel. So in and of itself, okay, it's action-packed. It keeps moving. But why immediately does he make his disciples leave right after feeding the 5,000? As soon as they're done serving, he says, okay, get in the boat, take off, I'll catch up with you later. What do you think that's about? Sorry, so let's give you time to warm up before we have discussion, right? (laughs) Yeah, so he wants time alone to go pray. Yeah, great, Hosanna. Any other thoughts on that? Didn't want the crowds yet. Yeah, yeah, later I think he says, you just want more bread. Uh, scolds them for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that could be part of it. Yeah, in John's gospel, after the, uh, maybe we'll wake up as we get going here, but uh, thank you guys. <laughs> Hosanna and Justin, yeah. Uh, in John's gospel, at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, in John six fifteen, we read, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain. So in John's gospel, it notes explicitly, he recognizes the crowds after he feeds them in the wilderness. They're saying, this is it. This is the true Messiah. Let's make him king. He'll lead us. He can provide bread for us as we march around. We'll drive the Romans out. We'll make him king by force. Uh, and, and so in John's gospel, that's why he withdraws to the mountainside. I think Mark is getting at the same idea here. There's a risk that the disciples might catch this same kind of mindset. They might think, yeah, that's, that's, you know, let's make him king by force. Let's do this thing. So there's a risk that the disciples will get the wrong idea about what kind of Messiah he is to be. And so he sends them away in the boat. Verse 46, as Hosanna notes, he goes up to the mountain himself to pray. It's interesting, Jesus only prayed, we're only told explicitly, of course, he's, we're to believe he's praying the whole time, but we're told explicitly three times he prays in Mark's gospel. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 35, 
we read that uh, this is right after uh, uh, Simon Peter's mother is healed. He's at the house. It's full of people. Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Then here in, in chapter 6 he prays, and then in chapter 14, of course, on the Mount of Olives uh, in, the, in Gethsemane, he's praying again. Each time it's in the dark at night, uh, either in the evening or in the early morning. Each time he's away by himself in an isolated place. Each time it's at a formative or significant moment in his ministry. So uh, early on in chapter 1, he's called some of the disciples to himself. There's been some early preaching, some early healings, and people are starting to gather around. And so it's kind of gaining momentum. Okay, it's time to pray and make sure we're on track with the mission here. Here, 5,000 people have been fed. John tells us they're ready to make him king by force. Okay, again, it's time to pray, make sure we're on mission. And then, of course, in, in Gethsemane, uh, approaching the cross. Uh, I don't think it's Mark, but um, uh, uh, Matthew, I think, tells us that's where, you know, Father, your, not why I will, but your be, yours be done. But if there's some other way, take this cup from me. So again, it's this sort of pivotal point of, is this really how the mission moves forward? But it should remind us that Christ himself, the perfect man, depends on communion with God, even in the midst of his sort of high points, his successes. Uh, and it's a reminder to us that certainly we need to depend on God in prayer. Verses 47 and 48 then set the scene for the next events. Evening comes, the boat is out at sea, Jesus is alone on the land, and apparently he can see the boat. Uh, they're making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. If you've uh, you know, been at the beach at sunset or camped you know, near a lake, you know when, when sun sets and the pressures change, then the wind starts coming in off the water and it can pick up. Uh, on on uh, the Sea of Galilee, this easterly wind, these easterly gales are still known today. In fact, in, in the Middle East, they're called sharkia, the shark, this gale that comes in and destroys boats. And sailors, even today, they don't want to be caught out when this wind picks up. So he sees them from the mountain out at sea, painfully uh, struggling the wind against them. And at the fourth watch of night, that is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., somewhere in there, he comes out to them walking on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What are we to make of this? Uh, I, at face value, it's a bit of a strange miracle. Uh, in the early modern period, and even, even to today, people have tried to find sorts of naturalistic explanations. You know, maybe there's a sandbar going across the Sea of Galilee, and he's walking on that, and they don't recognize it, or something like that. Uh, you know, what are we to make of it? I think there's three details that if we pay attention to, three aspects of this uh, help us to clue into what's going on here. First, he meant to pass them by. It's already a strange story, and then that's a strange detail. Why does he mean to pass them by? You might recall on the Road to Emmaus story that we looked at a few, mornings, a few weeks ago in the morning, 
Uh, when the, Jesus is walking with the disciples, they get to the village, and the same phrase is used there. He meant to pass them by. And in both stories, it's sort of a sort of play acting almost, but it's an opportunity to deeper engagement. Okay, on Emmaus, they have the opportunity to invite him into their home, and there's this deeper engagement there. Uh, likewise here, he, he's going to pass them by, as it were, and yet it's this opportunity to see something. Uh, the same sort of thing, dynamic, happens in the Old Testament. So remember uh, uh, Genesis 18, Abraham uh, talks to God, and then God says, am I going to conceal from Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? No, if he's the one that's going to be, the promise is going to come through, I'm going to reveal it to him. Well, it's interesting, if God just wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, why even tell Abraham, knowing that Abraham's going to intercede and there's going to be this back and forth? A similar dynamic happens in Exodus 32 through 34. God says, I'm going to destroy these people and I'm going to make Moses into the father of a new people because the golden calf, uh, that's the golden calf story. Israel's uh, uh, rebelled and they're doing idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, but if God really just wants to destroy Israel full stop, why even tell Moses, knowing full well that Moses is going to intercede? And so again, there's a sort of as if, so that Moses then intercedes and there's a deepening of the relationship between God and Moses in that moment. I, I, I'm going to argue something similar is going on here. Moreover, Mark is using language that, uh, especially to um, uh, uh, the first century audience who read the Old Testament in Greek, might have triggered some echoes. Exodus 33:22, the same episode where Moses intercedes for Israel. God says, okay, I won't destroy them. Then he says, uh, but I'm not going to go with them. Moses says, if you don't go with them, I'm not going to go with them. And then God says, fine, I'll go with them. And then Moses doesn't stop there. The most humble man who ever lived, Numbers tells us, goes a step further. He says, I want to see your glory. A bold request. Well, you'll remember the story. I won't go over the whole thing. But Exodus 33:22, God says to him, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. It's the same phrase that Mark uses here to say he meant to pass them by. Then in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him, the same phrase again, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That similar story that happens with Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and behold, the Lord passed by. The same phrase that says Jesus meant to pass by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So I think if you're reading the Old Testament in Greek and you're familiar with those passages, what Mark is saying here is kind of double-voiced, uh, a, a, a double meaning, a, a sort of a play on words. So in one sense, it's like Jesus is just, you know, he's just going on by. And yet he's also saying Jesus meant to pass by. To just like God passed by Moses and let him see his back, just like God passed by Elijah, these pivotal moments when God reveals something of himself to his servants. And so I, I think what Mark's saying here is that Jesus meant to pass by to reveal something of himself to, the, to, to his servants in the boat. Does that make sense? Okay, the second... Jesus says to the disciples after they see him and think he's a ghost, it's interesting the echoes of uh, uh, what we've been looking at in the mornings here, that when he appears in their midst again, they think he's a ghost and they, they're terrified. Here they see him, they think he's a ghost, they scream. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Well, that it is I is good English, but in Greek it's uh, ego I me, I am. The same phrase that's used throughout John's gospel in those I am sayings. The same phrase that's used in Exodus 3.14, I am has sent me to you. Okay, it's a phrase that could just be used in passing, but we're seeing power over the waters, walking over the waters. We're seeing, I'm going to pass by, just like God passed by Moses. And he says, don't worry, I am. Okay, I think Mark is trying to draw our attention to what's going on here. And then the third detail is walking on the sea itself. Uh, there's a story told about Canute the Great. It may or may not be true. The, uh, the story's told in the 12th century. Canute was a king in the 10th century who ruled over England, Denmark, and I think part of Scandinavia, the sort of North Sea Empire. Uh, and he was uh, a sort of Norseman, uh, quite violent. Apparently, he had multiple wives, so not an entirely Orthodox Christian, but had some level of faith. Well, his courtiers, his, his noblemen were really... Uh, you know, blowing smoke at him, and they're saying, you can do anything you want. You can, you, you, you know, you're the king over all the sea, all this area up here in the North Sea. And Canute took his throne, and he set it on the seashore, had his servant set it on the seashore, and he sat on the throne, and he, he commanded the waves, don't come up to me. And then he sat there, and the tide came in and covered, you know, covered his legs and stuff. Uh, this is the story anyways. And the point being, I'm, you know, I'm only a man. I am not God. I can command other men, but I can't command the sea. I can't stop the tide. I can't stop the waves. Okay, well, that's the story about Canute the Great. But what do we have here? One who can command the waves. He gets in the boat, and immediately the storm is calmed. The wind ceases. He can indeed walk on the water. Again, we've got to pick up some Old Testament references here. Isaiah 43, 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Remember not the former things, nor consider things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And then Job 9 is the most significant Old Testament passage for making sense of this sign. Job 9, verses 8 through 11. Job is saying, uh, uh, backing up, this is Job speaking. It says, how can a man be right before God? He is wise in heart, mighty in strength. He removes mountains, and they know it not. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, jumping down. He alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. He made the barren Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, these constellations. He does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on but I do not perceive him. Okay, the Lord alone is the one, God alone is the one who tramples on the sea, walks on the sea, who passes by and I see him not. Again, there's that, that phrase there being used. Who is this then? That's what the disciples asked back in chapter 4, after, God, after Jesus commands the seas and they're calm. They say, who is this? Well, what do you think? If we pick up these Old Testament passages, who is this? 
He meant to. <laughs> not a tricky, yeah, not a trick question. Yeah, God, the God of Israel who passes by, who reveals himself, who is known by the name I am, who walks on the seas. I think Jesus is trying to show something of himself to the disciples here. But they don't get it. <laughs> it says, because they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves, who feeds them in the wilderness. They're also not prepared to understand this lesson. Again, notice how similar it is to Luke 24 at the end. Um, they, are, they think it's a ghost. They cry out. They're terrified. They're utterly astounded. They don't understand, and their hearts are hardened. Remember at the end of Luke, they have to have their eyes open to understand. Uh, here their hearts are not yet ready. That's interesting to think about, that their hearts are hardened, yet they're still Jesus' disciples. He still works with them, and eventually their hearts are receptive. Um, we can sometimes think, okay, Pharaoh's heart's hardened, that's the end of it. That's his eternal destination. Well, the disciples' hearts are hardened, but that's not quite the end of it. Here's the point I want to uh, uh, make, and then we'll comment on the other verses briefly. But the point I want to make is this. Jesus sent the disciples onto the sea. He goes up on the mountain to pray and watches the disciples. It says he can see them. Verse 48, he saw they were making headway painfully. He's watching them in the storm, and he doesn't come to them until sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Okay, he sends them out when it's just not even quite evening yet, say 5 p.m., something like that. I mean, you're near the equator, so sun sets same time every day, 6.30, something like that. Uh, and yet it's six, eight hours, nine hours later that he comes to them. It's interesting that Jesus sends his disciples onto the sea. He watches them face this storm, and it's in the midst of the storm that he comes to reveal something of himself to them. Uh, Job, it's out of the whirlwind that God speaks to Job. Something likewise is happening here. And again, I, uh, my fundamental conviction that I've been teaching from all along is that Mark is a handbook for disciples. Okay, it is telling us about Jesus, but it's a book for disciples, teaching us how to be disciples. And so there's an image here for us, a sort of figure for our own lives, that Christ sends us into situations where we will face storms, and for whatever reason, for a period of time until the fourth watch of the night, we're in the storm. And then in the midst of that storm, he reveals something of himself. And I think that's a rich image for understanding our own lives. That at times we think, why in the world am I being in this situation? Why am I in this situation? <laughs> you know, why is God sending me here? Why am I still facing the storm? Why does this keep going on? I know I'm you know, looking around at some of the elders. I, there's more than one time we're pulling our hairs thinking, why are we still having to figure out COVID things that, you know, the last two years? And yet, at times, God leaves his disciples in the middle of that because that's where he reveals himself in the midst of the storm. And so, as disciples, we need to be patient and recognize that sometimes those seasons are the very place where Christ is revealing himself to us. Before we go on to this next little portion, uh, any, any other comments or questions or observations on the walk in the water? Yeah, Kuti. Um, yeah, I don't have my Greek Bible with me to see if it's an active or pa if it's passive or, or, or it could be middle, so they're doing it to themselves or passive that's being done to them. I'm not sure. Um, in, 
the parallel account in Exodus where the same language is used, it both says Pharaoh hardens his own heart and God hardens his heart. And so there's this, there's always this sort of dynamic that God is sovereign over the hearts. Uh, Proverbs 16, uh, uh, the heart of the king is in God's hands. That kind of idea that God is sovereign over our hearts. And yet at the same time, that doesn't negate that we also <laughs> harden our hearts, that we're also at act in our hearts. So it's, yeah, yeah. Um, the language could help a bit if I'd brought my Greek New Testament, but at the same time, there's always a mystery there that we just can't get to the, we can't parse out exactly um, both. Yeah, Albert. I'm glad you said what you said at the end because the first question you asked was why he sent them out. And I, I thought I was being cynical. I was going to say, well, he's setting them up. Yeah. He knew the storm was coming. Yeah. And like, why would he send them out? Didn't any of them say, uh, Lord, the wind's going to come up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's the wrong way of looking at it, and do we have the same struggles in our own life? Yeah. What's does God it? allow those hardships in our life? Yeah. So He can teach us. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if, yeah. especially thinking of, of that bit from John, that the crowds are ready to make Jesus king by force. Jesus is protecting his disciples from buying into that attitude of sort of triumphalistic. Yeah, let's go buy some swords and do this thing. And yet, he doesn't just remove them from that situation, but he sends them into a situation where they're helpless. And so there's kind of that, uh, you know, the, yeah, feeding the 5,000, this is miraculous, seeing my provision, and yet at the same time, don't get comfy. There's, there's also trial to face at the same time. And kind of the same dynamic with John the Baptist. You know, they're sent out, they command demons, and yet at the same time, Mark puts in this story about John the Baptist dying. For, so it's this back and forth of discipleship. Yeah, so is, is it wrong to say, well, that was New Testament before we had the scripture, and God doesn't teach us that way? Or does he do it still that way? Uh, I, I mean, I think that's the language, all the language about uh, the refiner's fire, is that we're put in a place, we need heated up so the dross rises to the surface. Uh, certainly in my own life, that seems to be, uh, when things are going smooth, it's easy to be calm and collected. It's, it's when there's conflict, when there's st st uh, uh, stress, that's when you lose your temper when you have to, you know, deal with these things. Yeah, Nate. Um, Tom pointed this out, but the first calming of the storm um, in between is, you know, you have, who is this? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think uh, looking kind of big picture, I think when, when uh, in in chapter eight, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, you know, there's this kind of same debate that John uh, uh, Herod has. You know, who do you guys think this is? Is it Elijah? Is it John? Who is it? And he says, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, the promised king. That's right, but in a sense, it's like all the signs up till now are saying this is the God of Israel come in the flesh. They just don't have categories to make sense of that, at least at this point. And so Jesus said, okay, I can work with that, the Messiah. But then every time he keeps saying, I am the Christ, I am the Son of Man, and yet I must suffer, do all these things, that they don't, they, that's not how they think about the Christ. They think about the Christ being a great military leader or something like that. So, yeah, so it's kind of, uh, 
I think, he, I think the signs keep making the point, this is Israel's God. And then after Peter says, you are the Christ, then Jesus says, okay, I can work with that. I see where you're at. Let's build from there. And then, of course, uh, at the crucifixion at the end of Mark, the centurion says, truly, this was God or a son of God. Um, and so it kind of <laughs> builds from below up to that conclusion, um, if, if that image makes sense. Some say Yeah. This is what happened. Yeah. And yet, uh, I didn't understand that Jesus was God. Yeah. Was God and he doesn't, and if it is Peter's gospel, he doesn't put in the account of him getting out on the water. Uh, he's quite willing to be the, um, well, what do you call not the straight man, but the person who, you know, Laurel and Hardy, what do you call Hardy like that? I mean, he's happy to be that character in this gospel that he's just dense. Uh, uh, of course, we all are as, as disciples, so it's not, not a mark against Peter, but yeah, yeah, Dan. Um, you had mentioned that in verse 45, it says immediately, that same term immediately is used in verse 50. Yep. He sends them out on the water. They labor for, as you pointed out, probably about eight to nine hours. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. Uh, so this almost ironic uh, reckoning of time. Oh, sure. Yeah, interesting. Immediately he sends them, uh, they labor for nine hours trying to get across the sea, yeah. and then they see him, and it's immediately yep. uh, it, just contrasting God's reckoning of time with our own reckoning, where it's anything but immediate. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great observation. And then, I mean, I, I'm emphasizing the I am, take heart, I am, but do not be afraid. If God is with you, do not be afraid, even in the midst of the storm. He gets in the boat. Is, is he wet? Is he dry? What does that look like? He climbs in the boat, but then the wind cease. They're astounded. Yeah, Ben. Thinking about Albert's question and then relating it, as you were saying that this, is, this has echoes of the Israelites crossing the water of God yeah. through Moses, Moses through God parting the waters, and why are trials brought into our lives? And is God passive or active in that role? Jesus seems to be actively putting them in a place right now where they're going to have difficulty. Yeah. And he lets them struggle in that. And I just think of what God says, I brought you here on purpose. Yeah. So that you would know that I am God. And yeah. all the people of the world would know that I am God because yeah. of what I'm about to do. Yeah. Your job is to be still and know that I am God. Yeah. And I think that in my own life, similar to what you were saying, when things are going easy, it's easy to forget God's role in my life. But when yeah. things are hard, then uh, yeah. I am reminded. Yeah. I think that's... Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of echoing that, was something I read this week in the table talk was that it talks about how um, there's a trade route from Egypt to Canaan that was seven and a half miles long. But... Um, God did not leave the Israelites on that side yeah. because they were going to face the Philistines and he knew they weren't ready for battle. So the, the long he way around. Them, yeah. Um, not only didn't, knew they weren't battle ready, but that they weren't obedient to him and they were yeah. had things to learn um, yeah. before they faced that, that kind of enemy. Great. Great discussion, guys. Well, this, this last portion, then, 53 through 56, it's another one of these summary statements that Mark sprinkles throughout his gospel, just to sort of keep the story moving along. And it's a reminder that he is not including every single thing that happened. Uh, 
it says when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. It's interesting, they, he sent them towards Bethsaida, which was um, northeast of where presumably the feeding of the 5,000 was. Uh, Gennesaret is about eight miles southwest. I guess I'm doing the map for me, so however that works for you. So southwest, about eight miles southwest of uh, uh, Bethsaida. And so it is kind of the opposite direction where they set out. Presumably, uh, you know, fighting the storm and the winds, they end up getting blown that far off course. After rowing all night long, they're happy to say, yeah, let's put it at shore here. Uh, Gennesaret was a three mile long, one mile wide fertile valley along the western shore that sort of headed out towards the Mediterranean. And apparently it's a region with, uh, as Mark says, villages, cities, and countryside. And wherever they go, there's crowds flocked around them. Um, Austin made this point, and I've been alert to it since he taught, just how, uh, uh, just like in, you know, they cross the sea back and forth, and it's one thing and another, they can't get any time away. Same thing happens here in verse 31. Remember, after the disciples get back, Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For so many were coming and going, they couldn't even eat. So they go to the wilderness, but the 5,000 are there. They feed the 5,000. Then he said, immediately gets them in the boat. They're rowing all night. They get blown off course. They land at Gennesaret. And then, what does it say? There's Mark's favorite word again. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So you can imagine them, you know, they, they're, they're in, by the seashore doing their fishing business and they hear that it's Jesus. They run off to go get Uncle So-and-so who has whatever need. Uh, you know, like bring him down here, we can get him healed or whatever. And so then they're bringing the sick together. Uh, wherever they come, they laid the sick in the marketplace, implored him that he might, they might touch even the fringe of his garment. It's that same, the, the woman with the issue of bleeding that sneaks through the crowd and touches the fringe of his garment. Um, they seem to have almost a sort of like mystical view that if we can just touch his robe, that's enough. And yet it's interesting, there's no teaching recorded and there's also no uh, uh, indication that, like the woman with the issue of bleeding, that Jesus challenges their preconceptions. Um, so it's just a healing ministry at this point. The last comment I'll make is that this, uh, they need space so that they can even eat. They feed the 5,000. Okay, potentially now they're 24 hours without having eaten. And now they're right back into the thick of ministry. Uh, uh, actually, two comments I'll make. One. Jesus calls them and says, let's get away to our own so that we can't even eat here. And yet, it's never, we're never told that Jesus eats any of the bread that's broken and given to the 5,000. But what we are told is that he has time alone to pray on the mountain. And that seems to be his sustenance, that he can keep going again. The second thing is when we, when we pick this story up next week, now when the Pharisees gathered with him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that his disciples ate with hands that were unwashed. Okay. These are fishermen who have fed 5,000 in the wilderness. You know, they've just been on the short-term missions trip. Then they come back. They go into the wilderness. They feed 5,000. They're rowing back and forth across the boat. They land somewhere they weren't even planning to go because the wind blew them off course. They're immediately thrown into the bits of ministry again. And these Pharisees and scribes show up and say, hang on a second. These guys aren't washing their hands like they're supposed to be. Uh, it, when you see it in that context, you just think, this, this is so absurd. that you know, they, don't, they don't even have a house nearby to wash their hands. And what are they... Anyway, so that's the context for next week. Uh, let's turn now, though, to our time of prayer.